I can't tell you how excited I am about this. I have just always loved the fact that you started this. And I was just so proud of you and so excited for you to do that. And I loved getting to listen to all the stories. And um, so, yeah, it's been wonderful. And I'm so excited to be able to share this story because it really made me think about it as far as like my story. It's not, not Katie's story. And you know, going through the questions that you sent me made me really think about things. And even then I had realizations while I was going back through this and like epiphanies about things. And I was just like, oh my goodness, it was just really powerful. So I'm excited. Hi, I'm Erica and this is Story Sanctuary. Story Sanctuary is a space for NICU parents to process and share their stories as a form of healing. Each episode features a different family's birth and NICU journey. And today we're joined by a mom who has inspired me greatly through my journey, Kaylee. Kaylee, where does your story begin? So my story actually starts as a little girl um, riding horses. And that doesn't sound really like it would be the start of my NICU story. But as I was thinking about my story, and this whole piece of everything in the NICU, um, that's when I realized that, my goodness, this starts way before I even realized it. I grew up on my grandparents farm and my dad was a racehorse trainer. And so I was just a horse loving little girl from the very beginning. So I, as I got older and was high school rodeoing, I had a riding coach and her name was Joe Weatherby. And so she helped me with my riding, um, all through high school. And then, um, as I went into college, I rode for the K-State equestrian team. And we went all over the country um, competing against other colleges. And I got a lot of friends through the team. Um, We built really close relationships. But then that also um, riding against other people helped me grow uh, relationships with those uh, girls at that time as well. And in that time, my riding coach, she would come and watch me compete. And so she wanted to watch me compete against um, Texas A&M when they were up. And I was like, oh, well, why is that school so like important for you to come see? And she said, well, when I was in college, my college roommate is Linda Gratney and her daughter rides for Texas A&M. And I was like, oh, well, that's really cool. So I got to meet Linda Gratney and her husband, Mark, and their daughter and we rode against each other, you know, all four years. And, um, so then, you know, after college, I got married and was training horses and giving riding lessons and, um, just really kind of fell apart from that relationship because there was no reason to, you know, stay in touch in that way. Well, 
when we were planning to have a baby, um, I knew I would be high risk. And then, you know, this is when our, our NICU story kind of starts in that piece of it. Um, I have an autoimmune disease called antiphospholipid syndrome. And so that can cause miscarriages in the third trimester because lack of blood flow if it's not um, appropriately managed. And so I knew I would have to follow a high risk specialist. And so um, once we were pregnant, um, they wanted to do an ultrasound early on to make sure like how far along we were to know when to start the medications and that kind of thing. And that is actually when we found out that we had twins, but we lost one. Um, that is normally called a phantom twin. A lot of people don't know that they have twins in this instance because the body reabsorbs that twin and you never know um, that you even had them. But since we had the ultrasound so early on, that's how we knew. And so that was hard in the moment, um, knowing that we had a miscarriage and we were grieving that loss, but then also happy and thankful for the healthy baby that we did have. It was a really um, kind of crazy time as far as managing those emotions. Um, and I really just tried to focus on the healthy baby. And, you know, as we've gone through um, another pregnancy, I realized I never gave myself time to kind of grieve that loss of that twin. Um, and so I, I have recognized that and have gone through those, that, um, those emotions of, of having that first miscarriage, but also with having, having Katie. But, um, you know, when, when I, when they saw that, they knew that they wanted to continue to follow me very closely. So we actually were having ultrasounds quite frequently in the beginning to make sure that my body would reabsorb the baby without any complications to Katie at that time. And so everything went fine. Um, and we started Lovenox shots at 14 weeks to help with the blood flow. And so I started giving myself shots at 14 weeks. I was still riding and training horses and giving riding lessons. Everything was going great. Um, we were planning. I, we had entered in the American Royal. I had students getting ready to go. Um, and I had, I had been packing everything for the week. I had a high-risk appointment on a Wednesday. And everything looked good. There were no issues. And that Thursday... I went to see my mom for lunch and she was like, you don't look good. Are you feeling okay? And I was like, I feel fine. I mean, I'm tired, but I'm pregnant and I'm getting ready to go to the Royals. So I don't, I don't know what you're expecting out of me, lady. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, looking back now, you think that was her mama's tuition, like intuition, like she knew um, something was not right. And so actually that next day I had severe pain in my back by my shoulder. And so I called my OB and I was like, Hey, I'm really painful in my shoulder area. And in my back, can I go to the chiropractor? And she was like, yep, that will be fine. Um, just keep me posted. And so I go to the chiropractor 
and it helped a little bit. But then that night, like I just could not get comfortable. I was so, I was in so much pain and I was trying to take baths. I couldn't, I just couldn't get comfortable. I was up all night long and I was waking Trevor up and I'm like, I just don't feel good. And, um, so about four o'clock in the morning, I call my mom and I'm like, and by this time I've been like Googling, you know, what we're not supposed to do, but I was just at a loss for why I was in so much. I was just so uncomfortable. And so I was like, mom, do you have a blood pressure? She said, yeah. And I, so I said, I'm coming over right now to check my blood pressure. And so I went over there and she took it and I didn't see what it was. And she goes, let's check that again. And so we checked it again and she goes, we need to call the doctor like right now. And so it was really high. I don't remember what it was. And so I call the doctor and um, she talks to him and they were like, yes, you need to bring her in right now. And so this is Saturday morning and on the way, it's like six o'clock by now. I'm trying to call my clients to be like, hey, the trailer's packed. I have to go to the doctor just to get checked out and I'll probably be home by noon, but that'll get us back up to the Royal by like two, like we should make it all this stuff, like making a plan for the day. So we get there and there, you know, check my protein, check blood levels, do all this thing. And they come in and they're like, you're going to be here for a while. And I was like, well, if all you have to do is test my pee, then I can just take a jug with me and we can just test it that way. Like I got things to do people. And they were like, no, you don't get it. Like you're here until you have the baby. And at that time I was 24 weeks and I was like, what? And I just lost it. And thinking I'm going to be there for the next two or three months, you know? And I was like, how am I going to be able to do this? Like what in the world? I don't know what you guys are expecting. And they were like, no, we hope you make it two weeks. And I was like, what? And so it was just like from one end of the, one end of the spectrum to the other on like, we were upset that we were going to have to be there that long. And then all of a sudden it was like, we were praying to be there that long. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it just was a wide swing of a situation that we just were not prepared for. And so um, I had to call everyone and say, guys, I, I can't go to the Royal. I'm so sorry. And so I felt really bad having to disappoint them. But they were, of course, my clients are amazing and um, we're very supportive. They were obviously more worried about me than missing the Royal. Um, and then we stayed at Olathe overnight and they just could not get me comfortable, could not get my pain un- under control or my blood pressure. And so they were like, this is actually the onset of preeclampsia. And so the next day they took me by ambulance to Overland Park Regional because they said, if you end up having to have this baby, we cannot manage her here. And so this was a Sunday and 
as soon as I got there, they started me on mag. And I do not wish that upon my worst enemy. That stuff is nasty. And um, it was an IV drip. And it just, I try to explain to people, like, it makes you feel like you're drunk, but a really bad drunk, like not feeling well drunk. <laughs> and um, what was, what really sucked about it was that I remember people coming in, but I do not remember any of the conversations I was having. Mm-hmm. So like the neonatal team came down to meet Trevor and I and explained to us what was going to happen and checked on us and did all of the wonderful things. But I remember none of it, like none of the conversation. I remember who came down to see us, but I do not remember the extent of the conversation. So carrying that over into the NICU, it was like I had never gotten any of that information, period. And then, um, you know, for Trevor, I can't even imagine for him, because he actually went into the tour of the NICU, because thankfully, it was in the same building, like I was in the hospital that our baby was going to be in. And unfortunately, sometimes that doesn't happen for families. And so we were really thankful for that, but he went up to the NICU and toured it and I didn't get to, which who knows, I might not have remembered it anyways, but I just didn't even know what to expect. And so over that was over two days of meeting people and they were constantly keeping monitors on me um, for Katie. And so it was Tuesday now and my family had been up to visit and Trevor's family had been up to visit and everyone was headed home. And the doctor came in to check on me and she was like, are you feeling okay? And I was like, well, I mean, no, but it's not any worse than I have been feeling. And she said, how is your vision? And I was like, what are you trying to get at? And she said, you have fluid on your lungs and I need to send you into an emergency C-section as soon as possible to save your life if we don't do this now, you're not going to make it. And so Trevor is frantically calling our families to say, turn around. We have to have a C-section right now. Doctors are running. Nurses are running. Like people are throwing scrubs on. And I'm just like, what is happening? And I could feel myself just get so worried And in that moment, like everyone left the room and I was all by myself and I was like, oh my God, I need God right now so bad. And so I just prayed and I was like, God, I need you to give me peace for whatever happens through this. We don't know if Katie's going to make it. I need you to just give me peace that we have done everything that we can. And I need you to keep me calm. Because if I can't be calm through this, I'm not going to make it. And in that instance, it was the craziest thing. Like, I just felt like a blanket started at my feet and came all the way. I could literally physically feel it come all the way up my legs, across my body and up to my head. And it just in that instant, I was completely calm. Trevor walks in and he's like, are you okay? And I said, yes, everything's going to be fine. We are going to be fine and everything's going to be fine. And he was like, okay. 
off we went. They wheeled me out. My family had made it to the waiting room and they had actually wheeled me by the waiting room. And my, I will never forget the look on my dad's face. Like it looked like he was just, I mean, he, he looked like he was looking at his baby girl for the last time. And so when I went by them, I just felt like I needed to give them some type of encouragement because I truly felt like everything was going to be okay. And so I gave them a thumbs up as I, as they wheeled me by. And um, so then we go in and have the C-section and they're telling me all of the things like, we don't know if she's going to make it. We don't, she's probably not going to, to make any sound. You're not going to be able to hear her. They gave me the option at that time to either be put to sleep, like with anesthesia for the C-section. If that was the case, Trevor couldn't be in the room. Um, but I was like, if I can be awake, I want to be awake. Um, because if she can make noise, I want to hear it. And I want Trevor to be in there for the both of us. And so um, I was awake. They pulled her out and she was crying. And he was, Trevor was amazing. He sang to me the whole time. <laughs> He's not a singer. And, but it was like him trying to help keep me calm and keep our minds like together through all of it. Um, and the Kaylee, team, what did he sing? I don't know. Like there was music playing and he was like singing whatever songs was on. And I honestly don't even remember what he was singing, but it was just the point of it. You know, he was yeah. just trying to keep us both sane through an insane situation. And so, um, and even the nurses and the doctors were like, this is amazing. You know, like they were like, whatever you guys need, just do it. And um, I'll just never forget that. And so they showed me Katie, um, in the isolate, they got her stable. The team was amazing. Um, and they took her away and my mom was supposed to be in there with us, but she hadn't shown up yet. And so I told Trevor, I said, I really want you to go with Katie and just be with her. And I need you to just be with her. And so my mom, the poor thing, she had gotten her scrubs on and was waiting in the room that we were actually originally in and nobody went to get her. Oh, so no. she, she didn't get to come see me until they took me out of the operating room. But they had told me, they're like, as soon as we get the baby out, you will instantly feel like relief. And so, and I did, I felt amazing. And I was like, that is so crazy that how much different I feel. And they're like, yep, that's the preeclampsia and help syndrome for you. That's what happens. And so, um, you know, Trevor obviously was up with Katie and he came down for the first time and just, bless his heart, he just looked like he'd been ran over by a truck. And I was just like, what is happening? And he was like, well, they had some complications um, getting her lines in. We don't know if she'll be able to use her leg because of those complications. And I'm like, what? You know, I'm like, 
already we're having things against us. And then, and then that happens. And he said, but we, we just don't know. We won't know until later on. And he said, but there were some complications getting lines in. And um, he said, but she's, she's fine. She's doing as good as she can. And so that night they actually wheeled me up in the middle of the night in my bed. And so I could see her and I didn't know it at the time, but they did that because they didn't think she was going to make it. Mm. And they wanted me to see her before she would pass. And so again, like at that time, I didn't know that she was that critical, but they did. And they, it was amazing that they went to that level because they normally don't do that to be able to get me to come see her. And so um, the next day, like going up to the unit was just, it was just down the hall from where I was at, but I mean, I couldn't walk. I had to be wheeled. I could only be in there for like five or 10 minutes at a time because um, it was just so overstimulating. Like with the medication I was on, I would get dizzy. I couldn't stand I would feel like I was going to pass out. And so I would go up in short periods. um, And it was really difficult. By um, the second day, I started getting painful again. I was in a lot of pain and they couldn't figure out what was wrong. They thought that maybe like my, when they sewed everything back up, that something might've twisted And so they were taking me for ultrasounds and I was just in so much pain. Um, We were going into the weekend and they were like, well, your surgeon's not going to be here. Um, And Trevor was like, where is he? And Trevor actually went out to the parking lot and found him on his way to his vehicle and told him like, Kaylee needs you. We need you. She is in pain. We don't know what to do. And he was on his way to a hunting trip for the weekend. And he came back in and was like, we need her in surgery right now. And they did an emergency gallbladder removal. Wow. And yes. So I had surgery two days after C-section to remove my gallbladder. And then um, I had a hard recovery from that. So I was actually in the hospital for 16 days from the very beginning of it. And that, the end of my 16 days was my recovery because Katie was born within the first five of those 16. And so that was really hard um, just because I was in so much pain and so much medication and, um, Poor Trevor, like he was trying to manage my stuff going on and he was trying to manage everything going on with Katie. And thank God she was in her honeymoon phase of the NICU because she was on her best behavior at that time while I was so sick. And so literally two days after I was discharged, she coded and it was a bad code. They worked on her for like 10 minutes. Um, My grandma had been, she was driving me back and forth because I couldn't, I couldn't drive. 
And so they literally called us when we were 20 minutes from the hospital on our way up there and said, Katie's coded. We need you to get up here as soon as possible. And so we get up there and they literally are, someone is waiting on me at the front and just rushes me back. Um, and the hardest part of that experience was there was a family in the room right next to us and they had their baby boy like literally a day after we had had Katie. And so Trevor got to know the, know the dad and I got to know the mom and we got to know them really well. Well, that baby passed away two days before. And when they brought me up, that room was still open and they put me in that room while they were still working on Katie and trying to get her stable, which they unknowingly did that. You know what I mean? Like they mm-hmm. didn't purposefully did that, but I, I lost my mind because I was like, I can't be in here. This baby just passed away. That's in here. My baby's getting ready to pass away. Like I can physically not be in here. And I just, was on the floor Um, and my mom got up there and she was of course a mess with me but you know that that moment was there was so much trauma in that moment not only because of what we were experiencing with Katie but what we had already been through um, secondarily with that family and I just you know, again, they, they had no idea what else, like my mind was going to just being in that room. And then at that moment, it was literally, we were living minute by minute. Trevor got up there and they told us, you know, Katie, her heart is not doing well. And, um, she needs emergency PDA ligation surgery, um, which closes the hole in her her heart that all babies are born with. And most of the time within three days that hole closes on its own or they can give them medication to help close it. Um, but hers was going to need to be clamped because it was giving her so much problems. And so they were like, the surgeon cannot, we first need to get Katie stable for surgery. So we actually have her scheduled for 10 o'clock tomorrow morning if she makes it. And so we were literally living minute by minute, holding our breaths. It was the hardest 24 or less hours of our lives. Um, They let us stay in one of the rooms that night. And I literally was like, I slept on her isolate. I just rested my head on it and I would do the handholds where my hands were just on her head and on her, on her little bottom. And, um, her stats would only stay up when I was touching her. And so I literally just slept there in this, one of the chairs that would raise up. And, um, one of our nurse practitioners, She had been on for 24 hours and was trying to get Katie to surgery. She stayed after her 24-hour shift until Katie went into surgery to be there for us. And I just, I'll never forget her doing that. It just showed so much love and passion for her job and 
you know, just the love that she pours into the work that she does. And I just knew in that moment that we were in the right place. Mm-hmm. And um, so the surgeon walks in and it's this old man. And I'm like, are we serious? <laughs> and out this wooden box and he has his instruments his his instruments in it and I was like oh my lord help me please but he also in his white coat has a pocket bible has a little bible in his pocket and he introduces himself and he goes I'm gonna I'm gonna do surgery on your baby and this is what I'm gonna do and she's gonna be just fine And I'm like, oh, Lord, help us, please. And (laughs) so I'm like, we got her to this point. This man is here. And the Lord has brought him here to us. Thank God. But I am not too sure about this situation (laughs) that just walked in to save my baby girl. (laughs) And so they sent us to the parent room, which had a couch on it. And literally Trevor and I just crashed. It was the moment, and I was like, I don't know how we felt like we could sleep, but we hadn't slept in over 24 hours trying to get her to this point. And I felt like we were just like, we've got her to this point. There's nothing more that we can do. And it is literally in this man's hands. And we pray to God, he is with him through this. So he comes in and he wakes us up and after surgery, and he's like, I will have to say I've never had to wake a set of parents up after their baby's been in surgery. And we were like, well, we just, we we're exhausted. <laughs> and we help every, he said, she handled that better than any baby has ever handled that surgery. Mm-hmm. And we were like, thank you so much. And he just goes into his life story. And this man is amazing. And I was just a, crying mess by the end of it he was like so passionate about what he does after that I found out that he had been in Afghanistan doing surgery on soldiers that were in war and he goes there six months at a time and he had literally just gotten back that week and I was like this was literally God placing this man in our life to save Katie at this moment. Like he, he could have been in Afghanistan and he wasn't. And this was, this was God being here for us and placing this man in our lives and, and these nurses and that nurse practitioner to help us get where she needed to be. And so in that moment, I made a promise to myself that I was always going to be looking for God's hand throughout our entire journey. And um, so, yeah, she, she got stable after that surgery, but she was just still really sick. And her lungs were really, really sick. Um, thankfully, we, she had not had a brain bleed. She had every reason to have a brain bleed um, between her code and the high dose steroids and everything else. And she never had a brain bleed. And that is truly by God's miracle. And, um, you know, we had multiple 
primary nurses that were angels. Oh my goodness. They are what truly helped me survive. Um, in those first few months, I don't know what I would have done without them. You know, we had nurse practitioners that were just so invested. Um, we had Grandma Val and Uncle Doug, and they were our nurse practitioners, among many others. Um, but we ha they had special nicknames. And um, we had just the amount of love and time that was put into the care was just overwhelming. Um, and so, you know, as Katie's journey went on in this during at Overland Park Regional, we, she had another code and it was because the tube came out a little bit. It didn't even come out very much. It just got misplaced a little bit. And so her support had been taken away just enough that she coded again. Um, those nurses and doctors and nurse practitioners took that code harder than I did and Trevor. Um, of course, we were upset about it, but they like they were emotionally upset. They thought that we were going to lose her. And, you know, in those moments, I'm like, these people are family, you know, like they, they love her so much and she's such a part of their lives too. And, you know, those doctors are, were just so invested. And so we got to a point where Katie was able to be excavated, but she was still working really hard. And I um, got a phone call from the doctor. And that doesn't happen very often um, that it was the doctor that called me. Usually it's like the nurse with an update or the nurse practitioner. But he was like, Kaylee, Katie has an irregular heartbeat this morning and we have to transfer her today. And I was just gut shocked. Um, I mean, it had been on the radar for a couple of weeks that like, if she doesn't handle this well, then these are our next steps. And if we can't handle this well, then we might have to go to Children's Mercy to be transferred for a trach. And I was like, just kept pushing that off. Like, oh, she'll be fine. Oh, sh she'll get through this. And a trach is never something that a parent would want to have to do to their baby. And so I was just like, she'll get through this. She's gotten through everything. This is Katie's show, you know, all of the things. And so um, that morning I was just gut shot and I got there as soon as I could. Um, they were like, we're going to have to intubate her to transfer her. And, oh, it just broke my heart. And she had a team, like they already had a transport team. But there was a nurse practitioner, one of her primaries that weren't working that day, and they came in to transfer her for that, that personal touch, that personal feel like they felt that connected to her, that she needed them in that transfer. They didn't want somebody that didn't know her to transfer her. And that meant so much. There were so many tears that day as we were leaving, um, grown men were crying, you know, with us as we were leaving, we didn't want to leave them because they were our family. 
And so I always I felt bad for the hospital we were going to because they were already behind the eight ball before we even met them. Like we hadn't, there had not even been an ill word said against them, but I'm like, we don't want to be there. Like I don't want to go, but I know we have to, to save her. And so, you know, we get there and it's huge. um, And it's, an open bay unit which is so different than what we'd been we'd had our own room um it's it had been a small room but it was still our own room um with a chair and here's this open bay unit and there's babies right next to us and and everybody can see everything and hear everything and I lost it I was a wreck And that poor nurse that admitted us that day probably thought I was the craziest person she'd met. And I also knew like how important my primaries were. So I was just like latching on to anything and anyone that I'm like, can you primary? Who can I ask to primary? You know, I was just, I knew that's what I needed but we were in this new place and I'm like, I don't know anybody. I don't know the system. I don't know how any of this works. And I, Haiti was critical and I was a wreck. And, you know, the doctor that was taking care of her was the sweetest, sweetest man. And he sat down with Trevor and I, and he was so kind and so soft-spoken and just really, told us like we are going to do our best to get her stable but we can't get her in to get a trach until she's stable and so we knew we were just going to be sitting ducks until this surgery and we were praying they could get her stable soon and so um you know that was the first couple of days and after the first couple of days I was there every morning for rounds um And this group of doctors came over to her bedside and I look over and I was like, Linda Gratney, what are you doing here? And she was like, Kaylee, what are you doing? And I said, well, this is my baby. And she says, well, I'm your doctor. And I was like, what? So Linda Gratney, someone that my riding coach grew up with or went to college with and knew. And I met way before, like I even got married and had that connection with was a neonatologist and took care of my baby. So you can't tell me that God's hand wasn't in this from Mm -hmm. when I was a little girl learning how to ride horses. And so I was just like, in that moment, I just completely felt like, okay, this is where we're supposed to be. And that fear of being at a new hospital, I mean, it's, it didn't go away completely by any means, but my anxiety eased so much. And she was like, we, we're going to take care of this girl. And I was like, thank you so much. Like it was just a huge relief to see her. And so Katie gets her trach placed and it was like a night and day difference on her. And I was so worried making that decision. And I tell a lot of people, you know, I was very fortunate because 
Katie really made the decision for us. Like we didn't really have a choice but to get a trach. Um, unfortunately, like I don't, I shouldn't say unfortunately, but sometimes for families, that's not always the case. Like they have to make that decision. It's not necessarily that the baby has declared themselves and the fact that they have to have a trach or they're not going to make it type of thing. And so I had to live with that, you know, that piece of, well, this is just what Katie needs or she's not going to make it. And then the fact that after she got her trach placed, she was so content and so much happier. And that in itself was such a relief to me to see, like I had made, we had made the right decision and this was the best thing for her. And so, um, you know, a trach life is, has its challenges and it, you know, no one in my life had ever been through anything like we had been through. So I felt very lonely. Um, people were, you know, what was hard about it is that, you know, friends and stuff didn't even know how to support us because they hadn't been there. And then it, it is a scary thing. And so I think people also kind of put up their own guard because they don't know that they can get to that scary place with you. And so um, it was a really lonely journey, but I was actually, um, I was introduced to a family, a mom that had had twins at Overland Park Regional. And one of her twins had been transferred to Children's Mercy for a trait. And so I got introduced to her and she was a saving grace for me through our stay. Um, she just kept it real and was like, this is, this part sucks, but this, these are the questions you can ask. And this is what you can do for yourself. And this is some tips that I can give you. And just, I would call her and just be so frustrated about things and she would just validate it and then say, okay, well, here's some tips to help you kind of get through this. And that was so amazing. And another, like God placed her in my life at that time to help me. And, you know, Dr. Gratney, she was on and off service, um, throughout Katie's NICU stay, but was always ever present in her care and the decisions that were made. And then we were lucky enough to have a specialist, um, a pulmonologist specialist, Dr. Escobar. Um, he came on to partner with Dr. Gratney because Katie, they usually have all of their trait kids go home on this LTV vent. It's a home vent. And Katie would not tolerate it at all. And so Dr. Escobar and Dr. Gratney partnered together to file Katie on this new ventilator. And it blew everyone's mind. Nobody knew how to run it. Nobody knew what to do with it. And Dr. Escobar and Dr. Gratney like lived at Katie's bedside, I felt like, trying to figure out what settings she needed teaching everyone else how to use it. And Katie was the first baby that went home on the Trilogy ventilator from our unit. And now 
all of the baby, the trach babies go home on that ventilator. Mm -hmm. But it was just so amazing to get to see the two of them work together to figure out a way for her to go home and live her life and not have to stay in the hospital only because of a piece of equipment that wouldn't support her. And so that, again, was God's hand in placing the right people in our lives um, and, and the passion that they have behind their work. Um, and so, yeah, we were in the NICU for nine months and she, she had other things going on. Um, you know, we had a G2 place and um, she had ROP. So we had a Vastin treatment and laser eye surgery and all of those things. But we were towards the end of the nine months. Um, it was a pretty amazing milestone because I was really, really close to my great grandmother. And when I found out I was pregnant with Katie, she was one of the first people I told and she was like, you're going to have a girl. And I was like, Grandma, no, you don't know that. I really wanted a boy. And everyone thought I was going to have a boy. And my grandma, she, again, she's my great grandma. And so she actually um, passed away two months after I told her that I was pregnant. And so she passed away before Katie was born. And when I was a kid, she always, always told me because I was impatient. A miracle happens in nine months. You need to have patience, child. And Katie was in the NICU for 280 days, nine months. Wow. And, yes. And so um, Grandma B's presence was ever present in our NICU stay and Katie's journey. And I know that she was definitely leading Katie's team up there watching over us and me. And so that in itself, that was a huge milestone and really meaningful for us. Um, and I didn't really realize it until we got to that nine months. And her voice came in, you know, one day when we were getting closer to that nine months and she, I heard her voice need to have patience child. A miracle happens in nine months. And so um, I really embraced that um, instead of, you know, people can get sad and thinking, Oh my gosh, we were in the NICU for nine months and kind of dwell on that. But that's true. Miracles happen in nine months. Mm -hmm. So we got home on the, with full vent support and all of that. Um, had home nursing and Dr. Gratney actually continued to care for Katie after through the trach vent program. And so she was, she took care, was Katie, one of Katie's main doctors taking care of her and managing her after the NICU. Um, and then she retired and a year later, Katie got decannulated and, um, so we were lucky and were able to, to stay in touch with her um, in that way to, so she knows, you know, what she was a part of. Um, so that was really special to us. And again, you know, the people that have just been in our lives throughout our day, 
it is just so amazing God's hand throughout our entire journey and the people that have been placed, you know, from all of our primary nurses at Children's Mercy, like, bless their souls. Like, they are, were literally my rock. You know, they know what you're going through more so than your own family does. They are with you more than your spouse is. <laughs> and they truly just live in the trenches with you through it all. Um, the doctors and the nurse practitioners, I mean, they are, they truly care. And that in itself is amazing to get to witness. You know, it, there were plenty of difficult times. Um, but the amazing things that come out of it far outweigh those difficult times. That being said, too, like your NICU journey doesn't really stop when you leave the NICU. Um, it never stops. And I'm finally coming to terms with that. I've always been like, well, once she gets the trach out, we can do this. Or once she gets to this point, we'll do this. And I've kind of had it in my head that like here in the next year or two, we'll get the G tube out and then we can have all of our NICU stuff behind. And then we have a new diagnosis and then it's like, oh my gosh, this is never ending. And for me, it was hard because like Katie doesn't, I guess for me, I just never thought of it as this is going to be a lifelong thing. And I have truly like currently am working on changing that mindset of this is going to be a lifelong thing and, and it's, it's going to be okay. And she's going to be fine. And I think that if I were to change anything, you know, throughout our journey, it would be that mindset of once we get to here, everything will be fine. Or once we get to this point, this can happen. Um, I wish I would have just not had that mindset and been able to just be okay with it. I also, I never saw a therapist through any of it. And here recently, I've actually started seeing a therapist. And it was because of this, the, this new diagnosis. And it was just kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. And I was just like, I, I can't do this. I am at my wits end. And I don't know that I can do this for another so many years. I mean, I know I can, but it's just rap mentally wrapping my head around it and then being able to help Katie through it. And so I started seeing a therapist and that in itself, I was like, I wish I would have started this sooner. But then I also thought if I would have started it sooner, had I really gotten out of it, what I'm getting out of it now, hmm. maybe not. And I Throughout this journey, I've learned that everything truly happens in God's timing and I can't force it. And so I've also come to terms with I'm seeing my therapist when I was supposed to see my therapist. 
and not allowing myself to regret that um, as well. And so, you know, again, it's just so amazing to be able to go back and have this platform that you've created to um, go and see God's miracles and God's hand and literally everything, the good days and the bad days. And on the bad days, the people that are there to love on you, like that's God loving on you and supporting you. And it's just so amazing and overwhelming to think of all of those instances. It's pretty amazing. That's another reason I like doing this because like you said, the NICU life doesn't just end when you leave. So -hmm. a lot of times you leave, you go home, you go to your appointments, your therapies, and you just, life goes on and you don't get that moment to reflect on oh man, what about that nurse practitioner? Or, oh my gosh, that was such a cool coincidence. Or like you said, God's hand being there. I totally forgot about that. So yeah, yeah, being able to go back, it's, it is a gift. Yes, it is. So thank you for creating this. This is amazing. Oh, well, thank you. We'll get to it in a bit, but I think of you as a mentor and you've really inspired me from the moment I met you up until today. And so um, we'll get to that in a moment, but I wanted to ask you a few questions about your story. Um, So you, I met you because you work at the children's hospital now. Mm -hmm. How did you go from your equestrian life to working at the hospital? Yeah. So um, I actually, they had reached out to me to be a volunteer, um, a mentor with our POPs program in the hospital pops is parents offering parent support and they said we really need a trach mentor for some of these families and so I was like yeah of course I would love to help other families going through this um and so I was matched with families that either had a trach or were getting ready or trying to make the decision to have a trach and my role was not to try to persuade those families one way or the other, it was to truly give them some insight as to what it's like to live with a trached child. And so um, I, you know, thinking about putting a trach in your kid is just overwhelming, to say the least. Um, and you can just think of like what life is going to be like. And it it's so scary to be like, oh my gosh, we're just going to be hermits and we're not going to be able to leave our house or living room or, you know, when you're in the NICU, your baby literally doesn't leave a 12 by 12 space if it's that big. And um, so you're thinking about all of that. And so I was able to share with them pictures and that we live on a farm and Katie would go and check cows with us and she's traked and has her trilogy and we just pack it all with us and her oxygen and her suction machine and everything. (laughs) And so um, being able to show people that and share what our life is like was so instrumental for them. And I think, I hope that it was freeing for them to understand that, you know, that this isn't just like the end of the end, uh, that they can still live their lives with with a great kid. And so that being said, I I volunteered for a while in that capacity. And then they asked me to be a a family advisor on the tracheostomy preparedness committee. And so I started coming to the hospital and sitting in on these committees with the trach team and they were working on parent education and 
um, I would just be that parent voice in that me- in that meeting and tell them like, okay, guys, like that's not going to work from a parent's perspective. And like literally just lay it out there on what I thought as a parent of their plan. <laughs> and it was so amazing because they were just so open to my ideas and they were like, oh my gosh, we wouldn't have thought of it that way. We're so glad that you're here to share that with us. And so it wasn't like they were trying to implement something and then they were getting feedback from parents and then they would have to start all over again. It was like they were involving the parents from the get-go so they didn't have to recreate things. So it was really cool. And we just got to where um, we were doing so much that they were like, we really need to pay you for this. And I was like, okay, what's that mean? And they were like, well, we want to create a job for you, a, a position up here. And I was like, what? And so they created the position and I had to apply and do the interview and all that stuff. But I was able to be the first parent support program coordinator in with the tracheostomy program. And so I did that for um, almost uh, five months. And then I saw the NICU position open. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's really where my heart is. Like, I love trait kids but I would love to help NICU families. And so um, I applied and it was pretty amazing in the interview because they were like, okay, well, what do you see this position doing? And so I just like laid it out there and they were like, okay, that's what we want you to do. And so the position was actually already there. Um, They had had a couple of parents Um, former NICU parents that were in this position before it had been vacant for about six months and then um, they wanted to kind of reconstruct the program they didn't want it to be exactly the same as it was and so I kind of told them what I want I would have liked to see it as and they said go for it and so I started there and literally Katie got decannulated the week I started in the NICU So that timing was really um, meaningful for me because I was like, I felt like that was just kind of really cool that we ended that journey with the trach as soon as I started my journey back in the NICU. Um, So it was really cool. Well, that's when I met you when you were working in the NICU Uh and I was drawn to you initially because we knew we were going to have a long stay. So mm-hmm. any mom that had been in the NICU for an extended stay, it's like, oh, I want to hear their story. I want to know how their child is doing now. And you put out newsletters mm-hmm. for the parents and you'd walk them around to the bedsides and make sure that people knew about um, the NICU night outs and the parent lunches. And so when we found out we were going to get a trach, and my kid was going to be a trait kiddo too. Everyone's like, have you met Kaylee? You have to meet Kaylee and hear her story about Katie. And you helped us so much because to see a mom who had had a long-term stay, who had a kid with a trach to be so, I mean, for lack of a better word, normal seeming, like you were (laughs) joyful, you seemed at peace. It showed me that it was possible that this is not, even though it feels like in the moment, this grief and trauma is going to change you and you're just going to be destroyed always, that there's this other side of it 
where you'll be able to, your child will be riding horses and enjoying their time at home. And I'll be able to smile again and eventually get to a place where I also can give back and help people. So I just want to thank you for that, Kaylee. Erica, you're amazing. Thank you. You're so sweet. I, you know, the whole reason I'm at Children's Mercy is truly because of God. You know, when I started volunteering and that position became open, I was just like, I don't, I mean, I had my own business. I was training horses and giving riding lessons and doing what I love and my passion. And I just, I prayed a lot about it of like, how can I help others? And I just felt like that's where he wanted me to be or that opportunity wouldn't have even came. And so um, hearing you share that makes me, makes my heart happy. Um, Katie would say it makes my heart sing because, you know, I know that that's, that's where I'm supposed to be in that moment. And again, it's all God's timing that I was there for you guys when you needed it. Yeah, absolutely. We appreciate you so much. Well, thank you. I'm, you know, when I'm on the unit and sharing my story with families, I try to be really respectful um, because, you know, somebody, somebody else's story in that moment can be very overwhelming. And um, our story can be very overwhelming, all the details and the medical stuff and everything. And people don't want that for their baby. And I don't blame them. I didn't want it for my baby either, you know? Um, but then also as you build that relationship, you know, when I first met you guys, I didn't just tell you my whole story. It was in little bits because it's a lot to take when you're going through it. And, um, you know, I, I think that people can only take so much and, and so much like in that moment. Um, to digest and then know like what they need for next time and that kind of thing. And so I really hope that our story brings hope to people and gives them that understanding that it's going to be okay at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, It may not be while you're in the NICU. It might not be after you leave the NICU um, or soon after. It might be years after you leave the NICU, but the journey that you go through, um, there is purpose. You just might not know about it in that moment. I had a question for you about the mind shift change, because that's something that I also have had to work on knowing that this isn't something that has a finish line. And once you get there, it's over, but that our child, our children have medical needs and things are going, things have come up, things are going to keep coming up and we're just going to have to keep working through each obstacle when they arise. Something I've been trying to figure out though, and I'm interested in what you think of this as someone that mentors and talks with families um, that are in the NICU, how do you prepare people for life outside the NICU without, you don't want to scare families Mm -hmm. and tell them, you know, this is going to be your life forever. How do we prepare families and mothers and fathers, but also not scare them to the reality question. You know, um, I think 
one way that I've been kind of trying to think through that is letting them know that your this new life, it, it's going to be new and you cannot put expectations on it. Because um, I have found myself doing that throughout our journey, even after the NICU of like, well, once we get to this point, then we can do that. Well, that's an expectation that I've created that I truly don't know if we can meet. And then if we don't meet that expectation, I have to go through that grief of failure of not meeting that need that I had created for myself that wasn't really necessary. Um, I'm not saying that you can't make goals and that kind of thing, but when you create a goal, you can also have it be fluid in the fact of what that goal looks like. For us, you know, I had always wanted Katie to ride horses um, and be a part of that and my passion. And the first time she rode, we had an oxygen tank with us, you know? And so it wasn't the expectation that I had, but we still met the goal, you know? And so kind of changing that mindset of, you know, what's our goal? Our goal is that our baby girls are happy and that they love life. And is that a, an expectation that I have created for us or is it meeting the goal for our life? And that's kind of what I've been trying to transition my mind to, to help me process things that we've kind of come up against. And as far as um, helping other families, you know, while people are going through the NICU, it is a constant cycle of redirecting those expectations and going through grief because, you know, you first decide that you're going to have a baby or you find out that you're pregnant and then you have this, you don't help it, but you have this expectation of what it's going to be like when you have your baby and you get to bring your baby home for the first time and everything's going to be hunky dory. And then you either get that diagnosis or you have a traumatic birth experience. And then you have to grieve that loss of that expectation and reframe what your next expectation is. And it is just a constant cycle of that throughout the NICU. Um, as, and then, you know, when you leave the NICU, you don't realize like, okay, I have all these follow-up appointments. I have all of these OT therapies. And then you get through the first couple years of being in the NICU. And then you're dealing with the school system. And that's a whole different ballgame that nobody has ever prepared you for. And it is so exhausting how hard you have to advocate for your child not only medically, but emotionally, um, mentally, physically, like through the school system and the support that they need um, and that they're not a cookie cutter. It's not, they're not like the other kids and it's not because you're like one of those parents, you know? It's that these kids have truly been through a lot and 
we are trying to give them the best, the best chance at being able to live on their own and care for themselves and, you know, be a part of society and contribute, you know, and that kind of thing. And so unfortunately it just never stops, you know, how, how you're handling. And, and I am fortunate that I, I partner with a lot of parents in our hospital and, you know, some of those parents have kids that are older are adults and have their own families. And they have even shared with me, like, it doesn't ever stop. Even when they, they grow up and they've gone through college and they're, you know, have a family of their own, it never stops. Mm. Um, and so just even having someone tell me that, it's hard to hear, but it's also helped me come to terms with it. Um, not something I want to hear, but it helps me get there in my time. Um, and that's what is hard as a mentor too in the NICU is, you know, I have to kind of give a little bit of tough love and that's how I explain it to the parents. And I'm like, this isn't something I want to tell you about, but I feel like you need to hear it. And I'm sorry if it's not the right time and you might not be able to process it right now, but this is what is going to happen or this is what you can expect. And, you know, I, another example is I had a family, they had been in patient with fetal health center for two weeks and then they had their baby and then they had already, they had lived at the hospital for two weeks and they were like, we're going to go home for the first time. And I said, this is the first time you've ever left. And they said, yeah. And I said, you need to prepare yourself for pulling into your driveway without your baby. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, what do you mean by that? And I said, that's going to be the hardest day since you've had your baby. And I said, I know that sounds weird, but like, you need to be able to prepare yourself mentally for that. Um, and they're like, we would have never thought of that. And afterwards they were like, thank you for telling us like, that's not something that anyone would have thought about. Um, they were like, you know, leaving the hospital was hard, but getting to our house without our baby was so hard. Um, and just realizing that we we can't bring her home right now and we don't know when that's going to be. And, you know, just kind of being real with people. I think that's all, all that we can do. Um, I mean, and that's the difference between working in the medical field and being a parent that was in that situation. I mean, maybe there was someone that would have given that advice, but they didn't know to because they had never experienced it. Mm -hmm. So, and also what you said about how this is a new life. I wish someone had said that to me because even though it kind of expected it's going to be a different life, the fact that it is a new life and if your child has something like, you know, for us, we had, we got a transplant recently. And so we have this other dramatic thing happen. Now it's a new life again, and just mm-hmm. preparing yourself for this new life. And then when you label it that you can grieve that old life that you had expected, but you have to know it's mm-hmm. going to be a new life where you're going to be pushing and pulling, trying to get back to where you were and you just can't. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what um, you know, I never, 
I always think too, like, they have to grieve that loss of those expectations. Like that's just going to happen. And when they don't, or if we don't, I don't allow myself to grieve the loss of those expectations. I can't move on to prepare for the next thing. Right. Um, you know, and that's with everything that they're going to be thrown at, that's going to be thrown at us. Um, you know, even with like new diagnosis that I've been dealing with, like I have allowed myself more so lately within the last year to really feel that hurt and that loss with these new diagnosis. Cause I knew if I didn't allow it to happen, I couldn't get over it and move on. Hmm. I would just hold it. And then I wouldn't be able to help her. And because I was still, still dealing with it myself. Um, and so that is something that I have had to do a little bit of practicing what I preach um, through all of that. But, you know, it's just a cycle that you have to go through. And the sooner you can come to terms with that and allowing yourself to grieve that loss and move on that I don't want to say the easier it is, but the quicker you're able to get in that happier place. Right. I appreciate you pointing out the goal versus expectation too, because sometimes when for NICU families, when your expectation has repeatedly just you know, not come to fruition, then your brain is almost like, oh, I guess I can't expect anything because I don't have any control over anything. But you can still set goals. Mm -hmm. And knowing that there's a difference between an expectation and a goal is really helpful for me to hear in this moment for myself. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it is important to realize the difference. And you know, unfortunately we do set those expectations, but if we aren't mentally, um, preparing ourselves to be like, no, we can't have that expectation, but we can set a goal. And the way we get to that goal might be different than what others get to it. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, and it might take longer for us to get to that goal than others, but that's okay because we'll still get there to some degree. Some families when they have a medical kit, they're like, okay, when my child gets to this point, then I'm going to have my second child or my third child. You have another kid now. Can you tell us about what that process was like from going from your story with Katie to to your new little one? Yes. I'd be happy to tell you about that. Um, again, this was a God thing. You know, we had early on, people would be like, so when are you going to have another one? And I'm like, you're crazy. I'm not having any more children. Um, Like that was what was happening in my mind, but I'd be like, oh, well, we need to get through some things. (laughs) Trying to tell people nicely, like you're crazy. But, um, you know, when we, when Katie got her trach out, I was like, well, maybe we can think about it. But I was still like, I don't think I can do this. And like Trevor and I talked about it and I'm like, I just don't think I can do this. And then um, Katie had been decannulated. Her stoma had been closed for a good year. Um, and I just felt like God was telling me I needed to have more kids. And I'm like, 
okay, you're crazy, dude. I'm not doing this. I'm not putting her through this. I'm not like, I was worried about if we were to have another NICU stay and she was going to experience it from that point of view. And then also like how I was going to be able to manage a baby in the NICU, still a medically complex child to a certain degree and supporting her and a new baby and all of that. And I was just like, I can't do that. Like, stop telling me I need to have more kids. And so then Trevor said, I really feel like it's time that we talk about having more kids. And I'm like, oh, I know, but I just don't know if I'm ready. And I was like, God's been telling me this too and putting it on my heart and I keep pushing it away. And he's like, okay, that's fine. And I said, well, I'll start talking to doctors. And I'm like, okay, if these doctors, if any one of them says that we should not do this, I'm not going to do this. That's going to be our sign that this is not going to happen. And so I went to my rheumatologist and I'm like, we're thinking about having more kids. And he's like, that's great. And I'm like, what? I really thought you were going to be my person to tell me no. (laughs) He was like, no, we can do this. We can manage it. I know I want you to do a couple things differently. And so I want you to start on this new medication right now. Now that you're thinking about it, ideally you'd be on it for six months before you get pregnant. And that's like perfect situation. So if you get pregnant anytime, like that's great. I just want you on this medication. I'm like, okay. So I start the medication and I talk to my OB and I'm like, we're thinking about having more kids. And she's like, that's so great. And I'm like, okay. And so then, um, I talked to a family friend that's a doctor and he was through, was through everything with us with Katie. And I was like, I think we're going to have more kids. And he's like, what? And I'm like, yes, John said like, okay, what have your doctors said? And I told him and he's like, well, they're not wrong. And I'm like, okay, but this is crazy. Right. And he's like, it is crazy, but they're not wrong. I just want you to be smart about this. And I'm like, okay. And so he didn't like say, no, Kaylee, like, this is terrible. You're doing a bad thing. And so he was just like, I, I know what the doctors are saying and I agree. And so then I went to my family doctor, like our, just the physician, family physician. And I'm like, okay, these are all my blood. This is all my blood work. Like this is everything what do you think? And he's like, I think you should do it. Like, oh my gosh. And so then I was like, I have one more doctor that can turn me down. And so this is what the fifth doctor. And, um, it was my high risk OB that we met with or like that took care of me through Katie. And I went by myself, Trevor knew I was going, but I was like, you don't have to come with me. I'm good. I had my first panic attack walking into that building. I've never experienced panic before in my life like that. And I couldn't control my body. And it was so scary to me. So I'm walking in the building and I just all of a sudden can't catch my breath. And I go to the bath. I go past the doctor's office into the bathroom and I just like collapse on the floor and I'm just like sobbing. I can't, I can't breathe. And I'm just like, 
what is wrong with me? I can't function. I can't stand up. I can't, like, I was numb everywhere. And I finally, like, probably 10 or 15 minutes later, it felt that long anyways, get myself together. And I go into the doctor's office and tell him everything. And he's like, we can manage this. We can do this, Kaylee. And I was like, okay. I go tell Trevor, like, our last one says we're good. And he's like, okay, how do you feel about this? And I'm like, just don't know. And I was like, you know, maybe it's that, like, and throughout these, this time that we were looking at these other doctors and talking to them and getting their consult, we didn't want to talk to our family about it because we knew what they had been through traumatic things and they were going to have a say in it. And I didn't want that to sway our decision. Um, and so, you know, I said, well, I really want to pray about it. And I want to look into adoption and I want to look into surrogacy because I just don't know if this is like, God is telling us to have more kids, but I don't know how he wants us to have more kids. And so I looked into all of that and I just never had that peace come over me while I was like looking into that stuff. And so I told Trevor, I said, okay, we're going to, we're going to pray about this for a month. So we, every single day for a month, we prayed together about God guiding us and putting it in our hearts, what he wants for us. And I said, if at any point in this month of us praying together every single day, like either one of us have reservations about this, then we're not, this isn't going to happen. And he's like, okay. And so we did every single day, prayed about it and we were pregnant. And then I, it was, it was really hard for our family, um, for my family, especially they were terrified and rightfully so. Um, but I did tell Trevor in the beginning, I said, you know, we're making a choice to not live in fear through this pregnancy. Like I want to be happy. I want to be joyful. I can get to the fear real quick if I let myself. And I said, so you are going to have to help me stay on the right track. Um, we have to hold each other accountable. And I know that people are going to be scared and we're just going to have to tell them like, I understand that you're scared, but you're going to have to do that on your own and not with me. Mm -hmm. Um, because I just can't be in that space. Right. Um, and so that was hard, you know, but it was a boundary that I had to set. Um, and everything went beautifully. Everything was amazing. Um, and it's crazy to think that, you know, we had this pandemic, um, because we had, I was ha going to have Macy in May and the world closed down in, in March. And I was also kind of like scared and grieving that Katie was so special. And like, how, how are we going to make this transition of a family of four when Katie has been just such a, an important piece and not that she wouldn't be important or less important when the baby came, but like, how is that transition going to look to add another important piece? And so the, the world closed down and I got three months with Katie 
um, because we were home together. And that's three months I would not have gotten with her before the baby came. And that was such a gift. And then Macy came and everything went beautifully. What was so crazy is that Trevor and I were the only ones in the hospital. We didn't get to have any visitors. And at the time I was like, like leading up to it, I was like, this is going to suck. Like, I still don't get that normal pregnancy. Like I, I still didn't get a baby shower because everything closed. And I was just like, this still sucks. Like I, nobody gets to see me really pregnant because I was still like three months away from having a baby before everything shut down. And I was like, I still am not experiencing all of that, but I got so much time with Katie. And then the intimate time that we got together at the hospital was something that we would have not got to experience because people would have been coming in and out. And it was just so special to get to experience that birth in that way when we had such a traumatic experience it was so healing in that moment um and then the pandemic was is still going on but I didn't actually have to go back to work in person until Macy was almost eight months and so I literally got everything back that I missed out because of the pandemic. Like how amazing is that? And that was like such a gift that I have really truly tried my best to not take for granted um, that God's given me through that. And, you know, our, while we were praying for all of this, you know, two years ago, I would have never dreamed like that wasn't an expectation for me to be able to be home with my baby every single day for eight months before I had to go back to work. And even then it was only once a week and at that time. And so it's just amazing that God's presence and his grace and his love has been through both of our journeys so much. Yeah. That leads us perfectly into the big question. So storytelling acts as a means of healing because it allows you to shift positions. Instead of your NICU story being something that happened to you, you get to own your story and decide what you want the lasting memory to be. So Kaylee, what do you want to be the lasting memory of your story? My story is one of God's love and presence his presence in our life and his hand in every situation that we were in. Um, He gave me so much grace and so much wisdom and the love from the people that have been placed in my life is truly unmeasurable and overwhelming. And for that, I'm forever grateful. Well, Kaylee, thank you for sharing your story and thanks for sharing Katie's story. Well, thank you for this amazing platform. I'm so, so excited for you to have this for families. And um, it's just, I can't thank you enough for following your heart and your dreams to create this for us.
if I could give any advice to families that are in the NICU and then also getting ready to go home, the biggest thing would be to give grace. And that is to give grace to yourself, to your spouse, to your family, to the nurses, to the doctors, to everyone. And just take a breath and give yourself grace in that moment um, because that is going to help you move on the, the quickest. <laughs>